Blessed God are you, a great God. You are blessed, for you are, as we have heard read, the Ancient of Days, the Eternal God. In times past and yet even today. You have spoken, God, in the past, and your people have been guided through all kinds of wilderness experiences. And they have been supported in all kinds of exiles and tribulations. And God, today we come in the midst of the wilderness of the world and we ask that you would speak to us today by way of your word and preached. Speak to us, God, through your law. Give our lives a sense of order and direction and speak to us through the gospel. And transform us by your grace and renew us in hope. God, for yours is the future, even more than the past. And we say, God, in that great confidence that the word of God is true. Amen. And amen. Help us today in hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I have on my desk at home, and... Please pardon me if I've told this story before, because I'm sure I have. And if you've spent any time in my office over the years, you've probably seen this little thing on my desk. And uh, what am I talking about, Nathan? Do you know? Dollar bill. Dollar bill. It's a dollar bill. It's not because I'm broke. Uh, it's not spare change that's laying around for you know an emergency or whatever. In fact, it's uh, it's been sealed and taped and uh, secured to the desk, and it doesn't move. It sits right there in front of my computer. Several years ago, I came across the story of the U.S. Treasury Department and how they train their agents when they go out into the field. And it has ever stood with me as just, stay with me, it's just a, a great story uh, that, that, that highlights uh, the importance of what we're trying to look at today. When they train their agents to go out into the field to, um, to determine whether or not the, the money that's out there in the system is, is real or counterfeit, uh, they train them with real currency. Uh, they do not allow them to handle counterfeit currency. Uh, they handle real dollar bills and whatever, uh, and they become so familiar with it that they will know immediately if anything they encounter out there is true or false. They have been so acquainted with the authentic currency that they know immediately something that's false or something that is counterfeit. Familiarity with that which is authentic is required of the Christian in a world of counterfeits. We live in a world of pretending. We live in a world where many things want us to think they're authentic. They want us to think they have integrity. They want us to think they're, they're sound and solid, but in fact, we are surrounded by counterfeits. And just as familiarity with that which is authentic is required for the Christian to such a great extent that anything that is opposed to it is readily evident, so unfamiliarity with the truth among those who identify with Christ breeds a ready field of dupes, people who are easily led astray by that which is false, thinking it was actually true. We need to be so familiar with the Word of God that anything that contradicts the Word of God becomes apparent to us right away. We need to know doctrine that is sound, so doctrine that is unsound immediately gets the attention of our ears. You ever been in a situation where you've read something or heard something and, and you've said, you know, there's just something not right about that. And sure enough, later on you, you realized that it was completely contrary to what God would have said in his word. In other words, you, you had a moment where you were tempted to, uh, to embrace one of those blades of uh, fading grass or the withering flower, thinking that it would be something that was substantial, and in the end it was not. 
Now the scripture exhorts the church over and over and over about the importance of truth. Let me just read a few texts for you, kind of by way of introduction. We're making our way back to the book of Revelation in chapter 13. But, but just think with me for a moment, just to kind of fill our minds with some thoughts about the, the importance that Scripture places on the truth. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father that He would sanctify His people with the truth. And He says, your word is truth. That the word of God is that which is so true and so reflective of the very character and the being of God that by our time spent in it, meditating upon it, embracing it, taking it in, that it might become a part of who we are, it actually has the the impact of transforming us into the very likeness of Christ Jesus. We are sanctified by the truth and the word of God is true. Truth. Now we're not sanctified by just a bare reading or bare memorization of the Word of God. But God, by His Spirit, takes that Word and awakens our heart to the reality of truth and begins to transform us, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, by what? By renewing our mind. Remember the psalmist said, Thy word have I what? Hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. He, 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 he tucks it away, not in a hidden place where he can never find it, but he, but he stores up a ready reserve of the Word of God and meditates upon the Word of God. It becomes his food day and night, he says there in Psalm 1. In 1 John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, John the Apostle writes, of this this importance of truth readily available in this reservoir that we can draw from within us. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let it live in you. Let it reside in you. Let it it take up residence there and, and dwell there. Let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you and lead you astray from the truth. Those who would try to to, to bring the church something that would be the the proverbial false bill of goods, the, the counterfeit. That which is not authentic. And again, if we're not familiar with what is authentic, when someone brings us something that looks authentic, we'll think it's what? Authentic. I don't mean to keep repeating myself, but you get the point. We're easily led astray if we we let what is true slip out of our hands. John chapter 8, verse 32, speaks about the importance of truth when Jesus says, this, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? It will set you free. Set you free just to roam out there and do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want? Oh no, that's the contemporary evangelical view of Christian freedom. That's not biblical freedom. We're free from that which is counterfeit. And our hearts are now attached to that which is true. And we're, we're gripped by that, and we're held by that. And we're secured by that. Lovely text in the little third epistle of John where he says, I have no greater joy than this, that my children are what? Walking in the truth. Now you know what that means to you as a parent, but John speaks of it as an apostle. He speaks of it as an apostle of the church. He, He loves to see the church walking in the truth. Why? Because when they walk in the truth, they walk in a way that reflects the glory and the character of Christ, and they set God on display for a watching world, and they fill their own souls with that which is good and joyful. Paul tells the church 
in Philippi about the importance of truth when he says things like this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about what? These kinds of things. Let these kinds of things, true things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, excellent things, praiseworthy things, let these kinds of things occupy your mind. And friends, these kinds of things do not come from the world. They come from the Lord Jesus. Those need to be the kinds of things that occupy our minds. Satan loves to counterfeit that which is true and challenge the church's belief on glorious doctrines that she needs to hold as unchanging and undeniable and things that cannot be released. I thought of some different doctrines the church often is challenged on. The unchanging being and absolute sovereignty of God. The church cannot afford to let go of a view of God where He is unchanging and absolutely sovereign on so many fronts throughout the history of the church and even so 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 widespread today are are are, are challenges about changing and, and twisting the very truth filled teachings of the scripture regarding the unchanging nature and the absolute sovereignty of God. The deity of Christ and the incarnation of Jesus as God in the flesh. John says he who who rejects the doctrine that Jesus is God in the flesh is what? He is of the spirit of Antichrist, it says in 1 John 2. I had a man I spoke to a little while ago who was embracing a teacher who claimed to be a Christian who was an anti-Trinitarian. Anti-Trinitarianism is a heresy. Jesus is God in the flesh. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He is the Word, what? Made flesh. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, hear that, God. And the Word, God, now incarnate. Doctrines like the sinfulness of man and his thoroughgoing depravity. We love to live in a day where, well, we love to live in a day, that's not the right way to say that. We live in a day where people love to say, well, he's a pretty good what? He's a pretty good person. He's a pretty good guy. What would Jesus say? What did Jesus say to that kind of a comment? There is what? No one good but God alone. The truth that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. These kinds of things often are tweaked in just such a way to, to, to mix something of the work of Christ and the work of man in bringing about His own justification. But the righteousness by which I'm justified and made right before God, as Luther would say, is a righteousness that is outside of me. It's an alien righteousness. It's, it's not my own righteousness. God doesn't just take my garment, wash it, give it back to me takes my garment off and gives me a new one that's his own. The inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. How many years has the scripture been assaulted from one side to the next, yet it what? The word of God stands forever. You can reject the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, but let me tell you this, you've got to believe some word And if you reject the word of God, what word will you believe? In the end, you'll believe your own. But you know what? You won't really believe your own. 
you really believe Satan's. Because that's the lie. Because Satan from the beginning has been what? Deceiving about the word of God. The absolute necessity of faith in Christ for salvation. Surely there are other ways. Remember that commercial used to come on TV? It was a, I think it was NBC. It was an advertisement for education and things like that. And the little caption came across the bottom. The more you know. Remember that phrase? The more you know. We live in a day with the proliferation of information. Sometimes the more you know, the less you know. The more you know, the stupider you are. You ever met people? All they are is just an encyclopedia of information, but they have absolutely zero on the wisdom scale. They don't really know anything. They just have lots of information. They don't know what to do with it. Their, their brain is like Google. It can give you lists, but it can't really process anything for you and, and give you any kind of real conclusion about the matter. It just presents information. We live in a day of the proliferation of religions. Where people think that, you know, you just need to study world religions. That's what you need to study, world religions. You know, it's like a class these days in many universities, world religions. Right? A smorgasbord of confusion. Just get a little bit here and get a little bit there. And then you're driving down the highway and you see the guy in front of you with the bumper sticker that says coexist. And you're just wanting to slam on your accelerator. And no, you can't do that. That's not very Christian. Maybe you could rip it off. I don't know. You probably can do that too. It's his property. He can do that. Live in a free country. That's, he can do that. And he can believe that. And in the end, he'll be what? Lost. He'll stand before God one day and he'll just say, I just wanted to coexist. Well, there's a place where people coexist. You can coexist there forever, apart from the presence of God. But in fact, the point's going to be that he's not going to say before God that he just wanted to coexist because before God he's going to be what? Silent. He will have nothing to say. God is the final authority over His worship. His exclusive right to regulate His worship according to His Word is something the church cannot compromise on. But we're going to find Satan wants to compromise on that all the time. Innovation, is it not the buzzword of the day? God wants us to be creative when we come before Him. Where did we ever get that if we want to go to creativity and worship, we could go to the Old Testament. But let's imagine Moses going up on the mount. Moses, I want you to come up here on the mount and spend 40 days with me. And I'm going to listen to you, Moses, while you tell me about the creativity you want to bring into the tabernacle and into my worship. By the way, bring Nadab and Abihu up here with you because we're going to need them here in a couple of days to show what happens to innovators. Remember Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, I believe? Offered strange fire, fire that was not commanded to be offered, and they were what? They were not given an award for their innovation or creativity. They were consumed by fire from the presence of God. Because no man has the right ever to bring into the worship of God that which God has not commanded. We would hold to and practice what is called often the regulative principle of worship. That God and God alone regulates how He will be approached. We don't add to His... God, did you ever think about this? This might be a good idea. God's given all the good ideas we need. And it's enough. The finality and the certainty of judgment. There is a point to man once to die, and after that to face the judgment. There is no post-mortem evangelism. There is no after you die an over. There are no mulligans in the presence of God. The eternality of heaven and hell, and the unchangeable destiny of those who go to either place. Didn't Jesus tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus? There is a chasm fixed between the two. One doesn't go to the other. 
That's just a, a brief little list of things I was thinking about. What we're going to find, and the reason those things came to my mind so much, is because of Revelation chapter 13. Satan is a professional imitator. A counterfeiter. He brings a counterfeit view of God, of Christ, of man, of salvation, of truth, of worship, of spirituality, of judgment, of eternity. John tells us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. We'll talk more about that later. He is, as it says in Revelation 12, the deceiver of the whole world. Would it not be nice if Satan only deceived in the garden? But his deception has spread from the garden to the ends of the whole world. He is the prince of the power of the air. And everywhere he flies, if you will, he spreads his deceit and his counterfeit way of thinking. Our text today points this out clearly and should be soberly heard by all who are present. Our text is a comprehensive warning and exhortation to all men everywhere to hear and give their attention to this word of truth. I want you to take your Bibles, if you have one there, and turn to Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, verses 11 through 18. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Let me begin by reading the passage. Now we're jumping somewhat into the middle of things here. We've been in this passage for several weeks now, stretching from Revelation 12 uh, all the way through chapter 15, verse 4. So 12, 1 through 15, 4, under the general heading of the battle for the cosmos. It is a battle between God and the devil, the devil having on his side himself and the beast and the second beast, which is also known as the false prophet, and God on his side, if you will, himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is the true triune God pitted against the false trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. There are the angels of heaven led by Michael. There are the angels of hell, the demonic forces. We find the battle is really not much of a battle at all in the sense that the end is decisive. God is going to win. He will triumph through Christ. He will slay them with the breath that comes out of His mouth, the word, the sword of His mouth. But in this world where we have, as Jesus says, much tribulation, there is a real battle that we encounter. And it's a battle against the dragon and a battle against the beast. And today we find a battle against uh, what the text here calls the beast, the second beast, or another beast. We're going to find later in chapter 16, this beast is called the false prophet. But we won't say much about that today. We'll reserve that for when we actually get to chapter 16. Um, I don't know, sometime in a couple of years when we actually get there. But it'll actually be faster than that, I, Lord willing. Uh, we're, we're taking some bigger chunks. All right. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw, John says, another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. From this passage... I want to make five observations and then conclude with two important points that I think we all need to hear. 
Now that doesn't mean check out on the first five things and check back in on the last two because those are the only two that matter. Uh, the two at the end uh, flow out of our understanding of uh, the first. Now one thing to consider, however, before we begin, I want to take you to the very end of the text. The last verse in this chapter is verse 18. And in our thinking, it needs to be somewhat the first verse. This calls, this, all that he said in verses 11 through 17, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is, I know, it's the sermon that you've all been waiting for, because we will give you here the answer to what the mark of the beast really is, all right? Um... It's the Beatles. No. Um, I am not going to give you the answer today. I, I didn't really say that just for you, Lindsay. I just threw it out there. It's not that. The mark of the beast is this number that people have become fascinated with for 2,000 years. So if you came today with a prophetic hat on and you have your prophetic notepad, and you want to know what the number of the beast is, and you brought your calculator, you will be sadly disappointed, because I do not know. All right? That's not just because it calls for wisdom. All right? um, <clears throat> I really don't think that all the speculation over the last few thousand years has really profited the church much at all. And so I don't want to give us to more of that kind of speculation. I think most likely those that John originally wrote this letter to had a pretty clear idea what that was. All right. Um, what needs to grasp our minds and our attention is it's the number of man. It's something about this world system. It's something about humanness. It's something about this fallen world in which we live. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All kinds of answers have been given uh, through uh, things like uh, gematria, which is a Hebrew way of calculating numbers and letters in the alphabet, and you come up with all kinds of answers about who this could be. It might have been Nero, and you know, very likely that's a great plausible option. Uh, the, uh, the Roman Catholics in the Reformation added up all the numbers and came up with Luther. And uh, so, you know, you might imagine that, 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 that based on what angle you're coming from and what you don't like, that becomes the beast. All right? Whatever you're opposed to, you know, maybe it's a, a Pelagian, you know, uh, he's the beast. Or maybe it's uh, Arminius, he's the beast. Or maybe it was Calvin for you. Or, you know, hopefully not, but we'll talk about that later. But Anyway, it, it, it's something that, that lends itself to speculation, and whatever you tend to be opposed to, that kind of gets the label of the mark of the beast. But, but, but the basic thing here that this is calling for is, is to understand that whatever this number specifically referred to in generality, it's the number of, of a man. It's the number of that which is associated with this world and with fallenness, and it's associated with the beast himself. So whether the beast here, this last beast, is one person, which I don't really believe. I think more in line with the whole context of the text is that the beast is something that represents that evil system of Satan in the world that stands opposed to God and Christ and the church. So again, if you're given to speculation, you're welcome to do that later on. Add up your numbers, get you a calculator out, and see if you can come out with what it is. And if you can, even if you can't, you can just come up with a good idea. You can write a book, and you can probably make some uh, money, and you can get on Christian television. All right, um, But that's not what we're going to be about today. But it does call for wisdom. It does call for us to be thinking spiritually here about these realities that are coming against God and Christ and the church. I want to make five statements about the beast. Five statements about the beast and then two points of observation. We need to be quick in the five points that we have to make. First, I want us to think about the appearance of the beast. So if you're looking there in your Bibles in Revelation chapter 13, in verse 11, we find this beast appearing. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
Its origin, it says here, is rising out of the earth. Now this is in contrast to the first beast in chapter 13, verse 1, that rises up out of the sea. This is why I had Paul, though, read Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel informs us greatly on the book of Revelation. And they they kind of feed on one another. And we can understand more about Revelation by reading Daniel and more about Daniel by reading Revelation. And we see these Old Testament, New Testament books working in concert together. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision about four beasts that are rising up out of the sea. Remember those? But then it says at the end of Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the part that Paul wrapped up reading, was that those four beasts represented four kings that arose out of the earth. In other words, this is about world leaders, world political systems, powerful authoritative systems in the world that come against God and come against Christ and come against the church. And in this world, we find the manifestation of their opposition against the church often. But in all reality, it's a spiritual battle that's going on in the heavenlies against the one who is the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man that approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom that would last forever. So this beast, like the first beast, rises, but not out of the sea, that tumultuous place of of evil and, and disturbance in the world. Everywhere we see in the book of Revelation this idea of something rising up out of the sea, it's something evil. It's something of the enemy. But these, or this beast, rises up out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it was lamb-like, but it was dragonish, we might say. From its sheer appearance, we see its imitation. We see its imitation of the lamb. We see its imitation of Christ. But we also see its imitation of the dragon himself. He is in many ways a representative of the dragon and of the lamb. And this is one of the ideas that lends to the the thought that the dragon and the beast and this last beast, the false prophet, make up kind of a counterfeit trinity. The father and the son and representing the father and the son is the Holy Spirit. And here, representing the dragon and the beast is this lamb-like, but dragon-ish kind of a being, the beast. And notice its origin, its description, but notice it speaks about its sound. It has the voice of a dragon. It spoke like a dragon. This is something about its appearance. From the very beginning of the presentation of this beast... The church's attention is drawn to its counterfeit appearance. It's it's deceitful appearance. It is something that is appearing to be one thing, but in fact is something else. And that ought to get our attention. Notice secondly in verse 12, notice the authority of the beast. The second of our five observations in verse 12. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth in its inhabitants, excuse me, I don't know whether to get regular glasses, bifocals, or some other kind of lens. I just need new eyeballs. That's what I need. I do this all day long in my office. I I do it here. And even when I take them off, they're not really very helpful because it's just not working. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence... And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It functions, it functions practically as the propagandist of the first beast. It is, it is promoting the first beast. It doesn't promote itself, it promotes the beast. Notice again what it says in verse 12. It exercises all that first beast's authority. But its agenda, what it's wanting to do, is get the world, get the inhabitants of the earth to what? To worship the first beast. It's not trying to draw attention to itself. It's trying to draw attention back to the first beast. Well, this is exactly, again, what the Holy Spirit does for Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness to who? Bears witness to Christ. 
points to Christ, exalts Christ, magnifies Christ, lifts up Christ. And here, this counterfeit version of the Holy Spirit is pointing to the counterfeit version of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and He's pointing to this beast and saying, look, look, worship the beast, worship this one. He functions as a propagandist for the first beast. Notice not only its appearance and its authority, notice thirdly, its activity. It's activity. And here, we need to look at verses 14 and 15, the first part of each verse. Notice in verse 14, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And then, in verse 15, it says, It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Notice the signs, the activity of the beast. What what does the Holy Spirit do? If you think about the book of Acts, What does the Holy Spirit do when it comes upon the church? It comes upon the church in great power, and it overwhelms the apostolic witness to give them the ability to work all kinds of signs and miracles to gain the attention and gain a hearing for them in the world in which they go to preach to. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. Paul wrote the Thessalonians, uh, speaking about the... uh, uh, the, the, the beast and the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist that would come uh, toward the end. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one, lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonder, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is the means by which he will gain the attention, if you will, of the nations. And is it not true in our day and age as well? That Satan has an amazing ability to gain the attention of lots of people by simply working amazing types of wonders and signs. Remember the old book by B.B. Warfield that was written back in the latter part of the 19th century or early 20th century, Counterfeit what? Counterfeit Miracles. A recounting of, of, of all these different kinds of deeds that have been done for thousands of years. And I'm not trying to say that God does not work amazing things and even miraculous works. God does all kinds of amazing things. But all kinds of amazing things in the world are not necessarily from God. Satan has the ability to work all kinds of powers. And here it says he performs great signs, even making fire, even making fire come down from heaven, which would have in its background, uh, remember Elijah? Remember Elijah the prophet? And the prophets of Baal? And they, they, they hack up the sacrifice, if you will. They, they arrange it all there on the altar. And then the prophets of Baal spend all night crying out to their deity, crying out to Baal to send what? To send fire. And he what? He can't do it. He doesn't do anything. So Elijah comes up and arranges the sacrifice, douses the whole thing with water just to make everybody know that it didn't like, you know, you know I don't know, self-ignite. Um, and, and he makes it almost impossible, fills the trench around it with water. He cries out to God, and God, what? God sends fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. Here, another counterfeit type of the miraculous. And he does it in front of the people. Why? Because he's a showman. He's a propagandist. He wants to get the attention of the people. It was allowed also to give breath to the image of the beast. Notice again... um, the beast, back in verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal womb was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down out of heaven and earth in front of the people. And then down again in verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image. Well, what image? We kind of skipped that part, and we'll come back to it in a minute. But in verse 14, it, 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 it has the people that it mesmerizes by signs and gains their attention. It has the people make an image of the beast that was wounded. Now, if you'll recall from a week or so ago, the image of the beast, or the beast that was wounded, is the first beast in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. Notice it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed. And here is the first beast giving imitation, a counterfeit approach to Christ himself. Because Christ is the one who was wounded, who, was, who died, who was buried, who was raised again. And here in a counterfeit attempt to look like he has resurrection, life-giving power, the first beast is wounded, appearing to die. 
but then comes back to life and gains the attention of the people. And here, in this act of homage, act of reverence for the first beast, the, the second beast has the people that it misleads, it has them make a physical image of the beast. And he is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Why? Well, that brings up a fourth observation. What is the agenda of the beast? In verse 14b, and in verse 15b through 17, we find several things. First, we find this. The agenda of the beast is to promote deception. It's a promotion of deception. Look in verse 14. Let's just read the whole thing. By the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live. The beast has an agenda that is a deceptive agenda. It wants people to be led astray by that which is not really Christ. Secondly, the beast has a promotion or an agenda in which he promotes falsehood. It says he wants the image of the beast to speak. It says this down in verse 15, I believe it is. He was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. There's much to say in this text about speech, the mouth of the dragon, the beast is now being given the ability to speak. And like Satan himself, whom Jesus says in John 8 is a what? A father of lies. All right. Well, what does the beast speak? He promotes falsehood. Um, later on, I mentioned in chapter 16, uh, the beast is referred to, if you will, in chapter 16, verse 13, as the false prophet. In other words, the prophecy, the speech that this beast gives is what? It's lies. It's, it's falsehoods. It's things that are counterfeit. But again, it doesn't come out and say, Hey, I'm counterfeit. Hey, I'm a liar. Hey, this isn't true. Hey, follow me to hell. That's not what he comes out and says. Satan himself is a what? He parades around in Corinthians like an angel of what? Of light. It's always amazing to me how the, the leading Christian television station TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, promotes the agenda and instruction and teaching of many anti-Trinitarian teachers. How does a guy like T.D. Jakes from the United Pentecostal Church get on the Trinity Broadcasting Network? How does that happen? A guy I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Joseph Goode, who has a ministry in Dallas, He's an anti-Trinitarian, yet has, over the years, had many programs on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. So, in fact, it's a misnomer. It's not a network that's broadcasting the Trinity, after all. And this is just one of its many problems. I don't want to get sidelined on that too long. It promotes deception. It promotes falsehood. Thirdly, it promotes a ministry or a work of persecution and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It makes me think of the Old Testament story of Nebuchadnezzar who sets up the golden statue of himself and commands everyone at the sound of the trumpets to what? Fall down and worship this great image. And might we say it's like an image of the beast. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or... Azariah, I always get their other names. Don't you hate that in the Bible where you know two names are given to one person? You know, it's like trying to figure out the twelfth apostle. You know, that took Judas's place, Matthias or Joseph or Bar. They oh, like three names in there for him. I'm just like, oh, it's hard enough to remember one name. And uh, imagine how hard it is for me when they ask me the birthdays of my children. They're all born. They're all mine. Can't you just write down born? You know. Born in the USA, I don't know, something like that. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to what? They refused to bow. We are not going to bow, O king, to your idol. And it's like, we're going to be thrown in the furnace, you're going to die. Well, okay, then we'll die. There is something 
Remember what we saw last, we said a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, he must be slain. Friends, hear me again. There is something in this world worse than death. Satan, hear me, Satan holds people in captivity to the fear of death. People, and you think, I'm not afraid of death. Then why do you eat well? Why do you run? Why do you work out? Why do you try to take care of your body? Because you're afraid to die. Now that doesn't mean that everybody you know, that does that is afraid to die. But the point is, you're going to what? One day you're going to die. You may be young here today. But you need to think often of your mortality. One day you're going to die. Just yesterday I was what? I won't say. Younger. I, I remember being a child. My kids look at me sometimes like, oh, Dad, you're, you're old. You, know, you don't know. Oh, I was a boy just yesterday. In fact, I'm a boy today. Just a bigger version of them. I'm 45. Which means if God gives me, you know, 80 years in this world, 70 years in this world, I'm halfway done and more, most likely. I may live to 90, but most men in the Montgomery family don't live that long. The girls live forever. <laughs> but most of us don't live to 90, 94. My dad's 77 and he's going to the doctor these days because he's got chains, pains in the front of his chest coming through to his back when he walks just a little while. My dad's carrying nitroglycerin pills in his pocket. Why? Because we don't live forever. You need to hear that. And you need to think about that. But there's something, friends, there's something worse than death. It's facing death without Jesus Christ. Because if you face death without Jesus Christ, you will stand before God and have to hold forth your own righteousness for Him. And your own righteousness will not survive. It wouldn't survive the fire of Nebuchadnezzar in the fiery furnace. It will not withstand the fire of of the judgment of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if our God does not deliver us, O king, we will not what? We will not bow. We will not bow. It is a promotion of persecution. Those who would not worship the image of the beast were to be slain. One last thing about this, it's a promotion of control. It causes all, hear this, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And again, I think we miss the point of this passage when we argue about whether or not there's going to come a day when we all have a chip implanted in our forehead and we're scanning our heads against the scanner at Walmart to buy our food. Those are stupid movies made back in the 60s and the 70s. But they're still being promoted today so many places. You go to the Christian bookstore and notice how many movies are made about prophecy, tribulation force, you know, starring you know, all these ex-actors in Hollywood that went through drug rehab and couldn't get a job anymore. So now they came over to Christianity and said, oh, you can have, you can have this guy in your film. You think I'm making that up. You go look through some of those things, you're thinking, yeah, I used to see this guy in some movies. What happened to him? Well, he was in rehab. He came out and couldn't get a job. But the Christian church snagged him up. Let's have him. He'll be a great star and people will watch our show. It's madness. We, we, we want to talk about chips and tattoos and, and marks and all these kinds of things as if Satan doesn't have a system without technology. This is, this is reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Alright? And reading the newspaper and superimposing the newspaper upon the Bible. And that's not the way we interpret the Bible. We go to the Bible and we read the Bible. And yes, there are many places where the Bible intersects with different things that are going on in our world today. But we do not make the Bible say something to fit our contemporary situation just to give some kind of a neat answer. Or we end up like Hal Lindsey back in the 70s saying that, uh, that the locusts were Apache helicopters. 
Where did he get that? Well, because he watched the news about Apache helicopters, and he read the Bible about locusts. He said, well, these must be Apache helicopters. And you think, what is that all about? Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. You ever read that? A few of you have. I'm really glad that most of you didn't raise your hand. That's reassuring. Maybe the book is dying. You can still find multiple copies in my library <laughs> on a dusty shelf. <laughs> it is a promotion of control. What is, what is Satan trying to do through the beast here as it promotes the cause of the Antichrist, the first beast, this satanic system? He is trying to control things religiously, politically, intellectually, economically. It is a system in the world that is built to serve his purposes to control those who will not submit to his agenda. Number five. This is our fifth observation. We need to be brief. The allowances of the beast. That's a strange word. The allowances of the beast. Look again in verse 14 and 15. It says in verse 14 that by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. And then in verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Twice in this text it is said to have been given allowance. All right? Now, what we remind our children often about allowance is it's not a paycheck. It's not some divine right that you have. You know, we talk sometimes, well, well, when I, when I get my allowance for the next two or three months, what's wrong with that? It's assuming on credit that they're actually going to get what? Their allowance. It's called an allowance. It's something we allow you to have. Now, I understand, guys, if mom was up here giving the sermon, well, there'd be a lot of things wrong with that. But if mom was up here giving the sermon, all right, uh, she'd be much more supportive of the idea. That's why they often go to mom for the allowance and not for me. Because I'm the cheapskate and mom's the generous one. All right, we all, we all know that in my family. <clears throat> but he is allowed to do things. In other words, he is permitted. He is divinely permitted. Who allows him in this text, listen and stick with this for a moment, who allows him to work these deceptive signs? Who allows him to give this image of the beast breath in order to speak and cause people to be slain and cause the nations to receive a mark that restricts them and controls them? Who allows this? God does. God does. So the question that I have in my mind is why would God, our loving Heavenly Father, the sovereign and good creator of the world, why would He permit, allow, give the opportunity for Satan and his beasts to work such evil among the children of men? Why would God do that? Many want to distance God from the evil in the world and say that He has no power over it, no knowledge of it, or maybe that God wants to help, but for some reason He just can't. But this is not the picture that Scripture allows you and I to have of God. God is a God who creates light and darkness. He brings blessing and He brings what? He brings calamity. He is totally sovereign over the, the destruction of Job's life. We have an amazing privilege that Job just didn't seem to have. We're reading the story of Job and wondering why Job can't figure it out. Because we've read the whole story. We've got the rest of the story, if you will, that, that Job didn't, didn't have. Job only had the first half of Paul Harvey and not the, not the last part. Didn't have the rest of it all to, to make the connections. Just thinking about our children. Um, well, this one's not our child. Uh, Bethany, who we're taking care of right now. Uh, has just learned this past week, victory of victories, she has learned to roll over. 
that's an amazing thing, you know, and, and it happened. She rolled over from her tummy to her back the first time a few days ago, but the other day when the CPS worker was at the house, she rolled over from her back to her tummy. Now that's, that's the big one right there, all right? And, uh, you know, I can, I can hardly do that. My tummy's in the way, but that's all I <laughs> Shouldn't have that problem. And she did it when the CPS worker was at the house. Now, now this probably is a silly illustration, but it's the one that kind of came to my mind. When a little child rolls over from their tummy to their back, what happens? And they're straining, and they're struggling, and then they finally do it, and it's flop, you know, head jolt, you know, body. And then, and then when they go from the, from the back, it, it's, it's, it's just this jolt no matter how they go. And, then, and here in a few months, she's going to get up on those little hands and knees, and she's going to start to move and start to crawl, and she's going to start whacking her head on things. You know, boom, you know, whatever. And, and then she's going <laughs> to stand up one of these days. She's going she's gonna to walk along the, the couch. And we don't have the couch that we had when Timothy was little where he put his little dirty fingers all over it and make it black. And it was a beautiful white couch until Tim came along. And, but now we have darker furniture, you know, and, and you can wipe it off. And she's going to wipe along and she's going to slobber on stuff and goober on everything. And she's going to go... And she's going to fall down. And you're going to be tempted as, as the adult in the room to what? You're going to want to follow her around. Oh, oh, she's about to go. And you're going to stop her. But you know that you can't what? You can't do that. The pain and the suffering and the sorrow that she will go through from turning from tummy to back is just a little thing compared to what she's going to go through the rest of her life. And she's going to go through all kinds of things. And God brings us through all kinds of things in this world of suffering and tribulation and difficulty. And he's not, he's not a God far off that he doesn't know. He's not a God so near that he's keeping us in the little bubble so nothing bad, evil ever touches us. He does ensure us that Satan cannot have us. But he lets us go through all kinds of things. And when we walk through the water, the prophet says, you won't be what? Don't be burned. But you'll walk through water. <laughs> the floods will rise up. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up. Where is God? He is on high. He is seated majestic in the heavens. And he is, He's watching over His children. And He's caring for them. And He's bringing them where they need to be. But He has them go through multitudes of things. It causes them to cry to Him. It causes them to trust Him. It causes them to be stripped of the things in the world they hold too dear. But keep in mind here in this particular passage, the beast is being allowed to do these things. Now, those are my five points of observation in the time that I never seem to have because I take too much time in the observations. And we got our preaching meeting here in a couple of weeks, and you guys can critique me on that point right there. There you go, Pastor Jason. Didn't save again. Time for the very end. Well... Let me just mention these two things. The point number one is this. Satan's worldwide system operates and perpetuates itself under the appearance of authenticity and integrity. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees of his day? He says in John chapter 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan oversees a system that is embedded with deception. It gives the appearance of goodness, it gives the appearance of authenticity. It gives the appearance of evil. But as that old saying goes, all that glitters is not gold. But there are fools that are born every day. And we are so easily led astray. We are so easily taken off the path for just a little while. But we need to remember that Satan's worldwide system operates and perpetuates itself under the appearance of authenticity and integrity. Here's the warning, though. Here's the caution. 
In 1 John chapter 2, John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Hear this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some of you here in this room, you are holding on to something that is of the world, and you're hoping that it will be the thing that gives you joy and peace and that which will last forever. But friends, the things of the world and the world itself are what? They're passing away. They're lies. They are they're empty, empty lies, deceitful lies that have the appearance of wisdom. Whether they come to you through intellectual advancement, technology, politics, a social encounter or engagement, friendships, all kinds of things in the world that you, that you think have this, this intrinsic, eternal, substantial value. And you have, you have latched your heart to those things that God says are of the world and are passing away. You've, you, you've attached your heart and your affection to something that will not last forever. And you treat it as if it has supreme value. Here's what the Bible calls that. Attaching supreme value to something other than God in this world, other than God because God is the only one of supreme value, attaching your heart to something that has a lesser value as if it had supreme value, the Bible calls idolatry. And you're worshiping and serving something that is a false God. And that false God can come to you as money, power, sex, a person, a job, a hope, a longing. It can be tangible. It can be intangible. But what it does is it steals your what? It steals your heart. And your heart is made for God alone. Satan's system operates and perpetuates itself under the appearance of authenticity. And we live in a day and age. <laughs> we live in a day and age where Madison Avenue still drives so much of the boat, doesn't it? Market-driven society. We are so easily enamored by that which has the appearance of beauty. This is why particle board versus real wood sells. Because Walmart makes you think it's going to last. And it breaks. And then you're like, what happened? It looks so good. A second point to make, and we'll be done, is that Satan always operates under the control of Almighty God and will be, along with those who worship Him, who find Him a superior value to the true God and Jesus Christ, they will be brought to a dismal end. But believers... Believers, be encouraged and remember in this world of make-believe, <laughs> there is truth. There is truth, and the one who holds to that truth will in the end be saved and preserved from all the lies the enemy wants to bring. I would say as we close, it might be a good idea this afternoon for you to take a dollar bill out of your pocket, put a little bit of tape on it, Stick it right where you'll see it all the time. Not because there's anything sanctifying in a dollar bill. But several years ago, I got that dollar stuck it on my desk. And I don't want you to add this to your tools for sanctification. That's not the point of this story. I, I, I was 22 years old. I just, uh, I just left home. I was going to the Air Force. Uh, Timothy leaves tomorrow for the Army. I left home, got out to California, um, talk about a world of make-believe, and I got out to California, and there I was, and I was leading a Bible study of single adults in a church uh, just one week. I was just there as a visitor 
hadn't even joined the church, and they, in crazy ways, let me teach the Bible study. And, and, I, and I shared this story about the dollar. And after it was over, there was a, a young girl that was there that Janice, you have to meet Laura, is that her name? I forget her name. I've written the story on the back of that dollar bill, but I haven't flipped the dollar over so long, I, I don't know what it says. But I think her name was Laura. She was 19, 18, 19, she a young girl in the singles class, and she was going off to college. I got to know her and her parents while I was there for training school. And, and on the day that she left, I gave her a dollar bill, and I just exhorted her, reminded her to study her dollar, not to be led astray. I would love to know what's happened to her in the last 25 years. I hope she's done that and held to the truth of the Word of God. And I taped a dollar up when I got back to my room. I thought, I don't want to forget that. And so for the last 25 years, that little dollar has been with me. And it's been just a constant reminder of the importance that the Word of God, the truths of God, the very being of God, that's what lasts forever. Friends, you may think that what you've bought into is going to last. But hear me, it's not going to last unless it's of God. It won't last. The, the great pleasures the world offers you, they will not be there in the end. But the one who does the will of God, the one who holds the truths of God, the one who holds to Jesus Christ, he will abide what? He'll abide forever. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so easily led astray by that which doesn't last. And we are so easily pulled to that which has the appearance of wisdom but in truth is folly. And God, it's so possible that we can even be in a room like this and hear what we've heard from the Word of God and disregard it. And just say, well, that's, that's nice, and now I'm going to go back to, to whatever pleasure it is that has my heart. God, I pray that You would, by Your Spirit, exhort and apply these words in such a way that no heart leaves this room that does not soberly consider that the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts more deeply into fellowship and communion with Jesus. As we've heard his word preached and our hearts exhorted to to flee to Him and hold to Him. And God, as we have the elements of the Lord's table presented before us today in bread and a cup, picturing the death and the cost of our sinfulness, the cost of our sinful attachments to those idols, God, the punishment that is due us as Your children is placed upon our Savior Jesus. Help us to reflect upon that and be grateful for that as we come to taste of the bread that pictures his body and the cup that points to the covenant that he has made in his blood. God, help us, we pray, as we come to remember him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.